Let's pray. Father, we are in a constant, desperate need for you. As we just sang, how amazing your grace is. It's hard not to recognize that line that says, saved a wretch like me. And so, in our wretchedness, you have found us, and in Christ you have made us. And so, I pray that you would create in us now Christ-likeness, and you do that through your word. So, let your word just permeate this congregation, and may your spirit fill us and speak through me and cause us to know you, to follow you, and to love you, and to serve you, and to be faithful to you. So be faithful to yourself and to your gospel and to your word, and make us like Christ. pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. <laughs> So when I was younger, I was a kid, big sports fan, love sports, love basketball, love football, that stuff. And what I did is what every kid does, is I picked my favorite players, right? My, my, my favorite athletes that I would give a lifetime of devotion to. <laughs> And you don't realize that when you're a kid that what you're really doing is you're devoting yourself to a particular human being, right? And so I devoted myself to uh, my favorite basketball player. His name is Sean Kemp. Played for the Seattle Supersonics. Seattle Supersonics no longer exist. But uh, Sean Kemp was my favorite basketball player. My favorite football player was Emmett Smith. You guys may have heard of him. Played for the Dallas Cowboys. And... Uh, I think he's like the all-time leading rusher in NFL or whatever. So you know, he was a really good football player. Of course, I liked him. And uh, my favorite baseball player, I know some of you know this guy, Kirby Puckett. Okay, now I'm a Brewers fan, okay, but I grew up a Twins fan, loved Kirby Puckett. Now here's the problem with devoting yourself to a human. Uh, one of those men ended up having, I mean, it's, it's, you've got to separate them a little bit from their professional career as athletes and their personal career as people I devote myself to, one of these men ended up having 11 illegitimate children. One beat his wife and then died, and the other had no major moral failure, but he did uh, retire from his sport. So my point is that ultimately your devotion to man can only last for so long, because man will fail you, because Humans are imperfect. So my devotion gets hit with the reality of, of sin in mankind when I set my devotion on another human. And my devotion cannot be maintained to these athletes because they cannot live up to what devotion is meant to become. Devotion is meant to lead to perfection. And when you devote yourself to an imperfect person, you'll get imperfection. So think about how devotion and perfection are related, say, for example, in your marriage, right? You devote yourself to your spouse, and like these athletes, your spouse will be imperfect at many points, usually all the time, right? But the point of your marriage is to become more like Christ, who is perfect. So though your devotion to your favorite athlete may end and your devotion to your spouse is not, is not intended to end, but to reach that pinnacle of sanctification, which is perfection. So devotion breeds perfection eventually. And when we are devoted to anyone or anything that is not perfect, even your spouse, the result will still be imperfection. So what does that tell us? It tells us to devote ourselves to perfection. Or more specifically, to devote ourselves to someone who is perfect. And in doing so, you yourself will achieve perfection. That's the gospel. 
Devote yourselves to one who is perfect, and you yourself will achieve perfection. Now, I think this idea of perfection, so I'm going to say this today, just being up front right now, and we'll get to this later near the end. Um, what I'm going to tell you today is that you, despite what you may hear from preachers and churches, you know, uh, no one's perfect. I'm going to tell you the exact opposite today. We are pursuing perfection. That's, what we're, that's our aim, is perfection. And the only way that's possible is if there is a person who is perfect, which we know we are not. But when we set our devotion on him who is perfect, he, our devotion to him, will breed perfection in us. When you think about it like this, if you spend a lot of time, if you spend half your day, every day, with a criminal... What are you likely to get into? Trouble, right? If you spend half your day with someone who reads novels and fiction books, what are you likely to, get, likely to get into? Novels and fiction books, right? Think about how your life has changed since you got married. Have you picked up any new interests that your spouse is particularly interested in? Probably. I, when I was 18, I picked up a guitar for the first time. My parents bought me a guitar when I was 18. Learned how to play it by myself. Self-taught. Took me about 10 years to figure it out. But I got there eventually. But I had really no interest in music. I liked playing around with it, but I didn't really learn anything. Then I met my wife. She's a music major in school. She's a beautiful voice. Awesome musician. And all of a sudden, you know, like a year, like not even a year after meeting her, I was leading worship at our church. I got interested in her, she was interested in music, and you better believe I was suddenly interested in music because she was. So our life changes based on who we're invested in, how we're devoted, or who we're devoted to, and what they're interested in. So when we relate ourselves to Jesus, when we devote ourselves to Jesus, perfection becomes an interest and a new pursuit. And it is one of the markers one of the identifiers of genuine believers. And what we'll see here is how the importance of Jesus breeds devotion and how devotion to Jesus breeds perfection. So as much as I'm going to tell you perfection is our goal, we also all know that we're not perfect. Right? So we'll address that later. But we're in verse 18, and Paul says, the second half of 18, 18b, He's talking about Jesus, and he says Jesus is, or he is, the beginning. The firstborn from the dead. That in everything, he might be preeminent. So for the third time in this text, verses 15 through 20, we see Jesus related to this idea of beginnings. In verse 17, when Paul says that Jesus is before all things, he's referring to a specific time. So in verse 17, this idea of Jesus and beginning is about Jesus existing before anything else existed. That he is before all things. He is the beginning of all things. And then here in verse 18, Paul's not talking about time that way. He's not talking about Jesus is the beginning or he was before the beginning or or that he was like existing before he already addressed that idea of jesus existing and being eternal before anything else so now he's got a new idea but it's still this beginning so it's not about time here but rather it's a reference to rank to jesus's importance and we saw this idea of jesus being ranked first back in verse 15 when Paul said that Jesus is the firstborn of all creation. That verse, just like this verse, reveals the priority, the exalted nature, and the importance of Jesus. So if you notice that Paul does not say in this verse that Jesus was in the beginning, but instead he just says that Jesus is the beginning, meaning this is not about a timeline of Jesus creating things or that he existed beforehand, but it's about his rank it's about his importance. It's about his preeminence. If you're wondering what preeminence means, because that's the, the last word in verse 18 is that he might be preeminent. This word preeminence means first place. It means most important. Number one. So if Jesus is the beginning, 
What is he the beginning of? He's the beginning of salvation. Paul goes on to clarify this role of Jesus being the beginning and says that he is the firstborn from the dead. So what we have here is just the way this sentence is structured is he is the beginning and then you've got a comma in English and then another phrase, another clause. And so there's no conjunction between these clauses indicating they're clarifying each other. The first clause gives us information. He is the beginning. Well, what does it mean that he's the beginning? Well, it means he's the firstborn from the dead. So these two sentences are related to each other in the sense that they explain each other. And so this idea that Jesus is the beginning means he's the beginning of salvation is clarified when Paul says he's the firstborn from the dead. So what does that mean, firstborn from the dead? Was Jesus the first person who was ever born? No. Was Jesus the first person who was ever born from the dead or raised from the dead? No. There were many people in Scripture who were raised from death before Jesus. So what's different about Jesus' resurrection? What makes his being born from the dead first? Well, there's a couple ways to maybe approach this. One is to think about the fact that Jesus is the first one who was ever raised from the dead into an eternal body. All other resurrections before Jesus were people who were raised from the dead and then, for the second time in their life, had to die again. Can you imagine Lazarus waking up and being like, yeah, thanks, but it wasn't fun the first time and now I have to die again? Thanks, Jesus. (laughs) So these people have to face death a second time and they were not resurrected into their final eternal resurrection bodies However, uh, Jesus is the first one who is risen from the dead and risen into his eternal state in which he is currently today in right now. And so, in that sense, you could say that he was the firstborn from the dead to be resurrected into an eternal body. However, though that reality is true and it is biblical, It is still not the meaning of this text. But it's important to say it because it is a truth that underlies the meaning of this text. That the the, the reality that Jesus being the first to resurrect into his eternal state is kind of a foundational truth that upholds, upholds Paul's real point here. And Paul's real point here is this. Jesus is the most important person to be resurrected from the dead. That's the meaning of he is the firstborn from the dead. If you think back to when we were in verse 15, and we are, are uh, yeah, in verse 15 when he says he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. We looked at that and we, saw, we realized Jesus wasn't the first human born in all of creation, so what does it mean? And that word firstborn gives us lots of information uh, culturally to the Jew and to the first century non-Jew or Gentile. They would have all understood this word firstborn to indicate importance or significance. That the idea of being the firstborn shows rank and honor. That the firstborn is the one who inherits their father's wealth and and is ultimately gets the, the birthright. And so this idea of firstborn is not about being born first. It's about importance and rank. And that is why Paul goes on to say that, he, that in everything he might be preeminent. So this idea at the end of verse 18 that Jesus might be preeminent is important because that word or that, that, that last phrase, so if you look at verse 18, we start in the, I should say the middle of 18 because that's where we're starting. He is the beginning, that's one phrase. The firstborn from the dead, that's the second phrase. That in everything he might be preeminent, that's the third phrase. And all these phrases connect to make one single thought. The first two phrases uphold each other. And then the third phrase reveals the product of the first two phrases. Let me explain that this way. The word that 
He says that in everything he might be preeminent is a conjunction. It acts as a conjunction in this text. You guys remember when we talked about Schoolhouse Rock? Conjunction, junction, what's your function? What's a conjunction's function? Hooking up words and phrases and clauses, according to Schoolhouse Rock. So the word that is a conjunction that connects the previous clause to the new clause, meaning this. Jesus being preeminent is the result or the product of his resurrection. So Paul's line of thinking here is that Jesus' resurrection makes him preeminent, and preeminent means first place or most important. So, so this, is why it, this is why this is when it says he is the beginning, he's talking about he's the beginning of salvation. Because ultimately, what we get from Jesus is that he's the most important person ever to be resurrected from the dead. Why is he the most important person to ever be resurrected from the dead? Because without his resurrection, we have no resurrection. Without his resurrection, we have no salvation. So his resurrection is the best. And so he is most important, first place, preeminent. Jesus' resurrection to life makes him preeminent because his resurrection sets the stage for all of our resurrections. And without his, without him being raised from the dead, without him being firstborn, without him being preeminent, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 17 through 19, that if he's not raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep that's died those who have died in christ have perished meaning they've gone to hell essentially that there is no hope there's no heaven and he says if in this life we have if in this life only we have hoped in christ meaning if we have only set our hope on christ and no one else or nothing else or if we haven't set our hope on good works the gospel says good works are nothing good works are not going to get you saved and I ask people this all the time. I'm sure you guys have heard it yourself, okay? How do you know you're going to heaven? People tell me, I don't know, I'm a good person. Not according to God, you're not, because according to God, his, his standard is perfection, and you're not perfect. You might be a good person according to our moral standards in America or in the world, but being a good person isn't good enough, right? So perfection is the requirement. But if you have set your hope on anything other than the gospel, if you've set your hope on your good works, or if you set your hope on how you serve, or if you've set your hope on, oh, I give a lot of money to charity, or I've given a lot of money to the church, or you set your hope on, I've been to church every Sunday. That's not going to get you saved. That's not hope. All of those things are the product of setting your hope on the real truth. And so if you have hoped only in Christ, that's your only way to be saved. But what Paul's saying here is if you have set your hope only on Christ and he didn't rise from the dead, then he says, we are of all people most to be pitied. <clears throat> Translation, we are the dumbest people on earth. And we, people should feel sorry for us because of how foolish we are for putting all of our apples in the Jesus basket if he's not risen from the dead. So I think from that text, we could easily pull a truth out of that and say, is Jesus' resurrection the most important resurrection? Yeah, because if it's not real and he didn't rise, then what's the point of our lives? But instead of that bad news, we do get some good news in the Bible about his resurrection. So that's kind of the 1 Corinthians 15, 17 through 19 is kind of like, yikes, if he's not risen, we're in trouble. But then in Romans 6, verses 4 through 5, we get kind of this good news, this, this benefit and blessing that comes with the resurrection of Jesus. Paul says, we were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death. So he's not talking about water baptism. He's talking about being baptized into death, believing the gospel and Essentially, our old man, our sinful nature, dying in Christ through faith. And he says that we, we were baptized with him into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might 
Walk in newness of life. Now, that newness of life comes with the resurrection, right? When you, when we are, if we are resurrected from the dead, we are resurrected into a new life. Now, Paul's not talking about the future resurrection here. He's talking about our a spiritual resurrection of a new person, right? And Paul says in 2 Corinthians that we are a new creation in Christ, right? The old has passed away, the new has come. We are completely new in Christ today. The old man has died, the new man is alive in us. Galatians 2.20, it's not I who live, but Christ who lives in me. So ultimately, what Paul's saying here is, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of Father, we too have been raised from the dead. And what is raised from the dead today look like today? It looks like newness of life. And then he concludes with this. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, that means believing the gospel and dying to the old man, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. So if Jesus is not raised, then we too are not raised to life or given salvation. But because Jesus was raised from the dead, and because of all the other realities of the supremacy of Christ that Paul has explained throughout these last four verses, we know that his resurrection has created a way for us to be saved. And Paul has kind of built this argument to show us how important Jesus is, how supreme he is, how sovereign he is, how he rules, how he created all things. He was before all things. He's the eternal God. He existed before anything was created. There was no timeline to his existence. There was no beginning to his existence. And then he becomes this humble man. He enters into the flesh that he created, is born into humanity to be a human for the rest of eternity and then not only that, face that humiliation, but then to die a death that he doesn't deserve, our death, to die on the cross for your sins, and then also to be raised from the dead for your life, that he would kill sin and conquer sin and conquer death by dying the death you deserve and then going to the grave that you deserve to be in and then conquering that grave by coming out of it. And then all he says to you is, all you have to do is come to me. And I will give you me. And I am your ticket into heaven. So just come to me. And that's called faith. Just believing his gospel. Believing his truth. And, and we talk about faith, but faith without the lordship of Jesus isn't even faith, honestly. Because people who put their faith in Jesus start to look like Jesus. Why? Because they devote themselves to Jesus. And when you spend time with Jesus, you start to become like him. There are things that my wife thinks are funny that I don't think are funny. There are things that I think are funny that my wife thinks are not funny. But the longer we are married, the more our humor has started to merge, and now we think the same things are funny. So now we find little videos on the internet and send them to each other, and I can hear her in two rooms away in the house go, ha, 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 because she just read saw my video that I said, I'm like, yes, she thought it was funny. Like, so, so like, you, you know, you, 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 the more time you spend with somebody, the more you merge into them, the more you become like them. Okay, if I have a friend who loves to eat, I know that when I'm going to hang out with him, I got to bring food. Right, Will? So, <laughs> the more time you spend with the people you love, the more you become like them because you devote yourselves to them, right? I mean, think about it just like this. You guys sit here and listen to me preach week after week after week. For those of you who have been here the whole time I've been here, six years, six and a half years, you get used to me. You get used to my style of preaching, the way that I tell stories, the way that I explain a Bible verse, blah, blah, blah. Well, all the, the little nuances and idiosyncrasies of the way that I preach, you get used to. And then you go listen to someone else do it, and it's, it's either like, well, oh, I'm not really used to that style of preaching, or it's a breath of fresh air once in a while, right? <laughs> this is why we have other people at the pulpit, too. I'm very aware that everybody needs a break from Mark sometimes, okay? But the reality is the more time we spend with people the more we become like them. The more you devote yourself to them, the more you become like them. And when you devote yourself to the perfect person of Jesus Christ, the more you become like Christ. The more you become perfect. I know we're all willing to admit we're not perfect, right? But it is a reality that our devotion breeds 
perfection. Now, I'll get to that again in a second, but Paul's ultimate point here is not to really expound on the resurrection of Jesus. This isn't a resurrection text, honestly. What it really is, is it's a continuation of Paul's argument to the Colossians in the face of great heresies in Colossae at the time from the Gnostics particularly, the Gnostics who were teaching all these false realities about Jesus that he was just this emanation from God. He's just like this lesser God that just kind of reflects God. He's not really a person. He's not really a God. He's kind of this little demigod type of thing. And, and he's, he's less than the angels. And you find this all throughout the New Testament. There's all these different perspectives on Christ that all the New Testament authors address in their text. We all know that Jesus is greater than the angels, right? We know he made the angels. We know that. They didn't know that in the first century, I mean, some people knew it, the apostles knew it, but the churches were surrounded by a lot of heresies that were infiltrating the church, and people were saying, oh, Jesus is just an angel. Oh, he's just a prophet. Oh, he's just an emanation. He's not God himself. Oh, he's just a man. Oh, he's not a man. He is fully God, but not a man. Or he's fully man and not God. There's all these false teachings and heresies that infiltrated the church, and because of it, the New Testament authors addressed those heresies in their letters. Like in Hebrews chapter 1 and 2, when the author just talks about Jesus being greater than the angels. And we're sitting here reading and go, yeah, I know this. Duh. I've known this since I was a kid. I never thought Jesus was lesser than the angels. The only reason you know that is because they didn't know it in the first century and someone had to tell them about it. And we have that letter today. And you learned it when you were a kid and believed it. And so to us, it's just second nature to believe these things. But if they didn't have those heresies then, if Paul wasn't facing the heresies in the first century, we wouldn't have these truths today. So in the face of these heretical teachings about, from the Gnostics about Jesus being just some emanation of, of God, that there's like thousands of, of God-like beings that just kind of slowly get less and less holy, and then you get to Jesus, and Jesus isn't perfect or holy. That's what the Gnostics were teaching. The Colossians are like, uh, Paul, what, what, what is all this about? Like, we heard that Jesus really isn't who you say he is. And then Paul's like, I'm going to write you a letter. And in verses 15 through 20, Paul just like puts the stamp on the nature of Christ and says, Jesus is ultimately, this is the point of verses 15 through 20, supreme over everything. There's nothing that reigns over him. And so Paul's building this huge argument on the big, this big reality on the total and absolute supremacy of Jesus. Now, if Jesus is truly supreme, then one of the truths that must also be real that is that he is the most important being to exist. He must be preeminent if he is to be supreme. So which, that's why Paul inserts the preeminence of Christ into this text, because it's essential to building a, an argument for a supreme sovereign God. In Jesus, that he has to be not only reign, not only rule over everything, not only reign over, over everything, not only create everything, not only be glorified in everything, but to be the most important being that exists, period. And this is natural. We see that creation itself experiences these same realities because if you look at our cultures throughout the history of mankind, all cultures are the same. We all want kings. Right, we saw, I talked about last week, we saw Israel wanted a king. Okay, if you, every kingdom that has a king, that king is supreme in their nation, in their kingdom. They rule over everything, and their words, I'm talking about human kings, right? And their words make things happen. And with their supremacy over their kingdom and over their nation comes this preeminence, or this, with rule comes importance, the king is the most important person in their kingdom. And it is expected that all the subjects, all the people in that kingdom will submit not only to the words of the king, but to the importance of the king. During the Second World War, after Pearl, Har after Pearl Harbor, Jap you know, Japan attacked Pearl Harbor, America responded and sent some bombers to Tokyo and dropped bombs all over Tokyo. One of those bombs landed on the uh, property of the emperor of Japan. And the emperor was fine. He didn't die, but it landed right next to where he was. And it dawned on all the Japanese generals and military leaders and all of his 
uh, all the important people who, who are involved in what would be their empire, they realized if the emperor had died, and they admitted this, if the emperor had died, we would have all killed ourselves because our king has died. If he dies, our life has no meaning. That's how important the emperor is in Japan in the 1940s. So we see that kind of reality happen all the time. We see it in the Bible. We see it in cultures since the Bible that when one person reigns supreme over a kingdom or a nation, not only are they sovereignly ruling that nation, but they're the most important person. You can't have supremacy without preeminence. You can't have rule without importance. And the only reason we experience our lives like that, the only reason we experience our cultures that way throughout all of human history is because we live out in minor expressions the reality of who Jesus is. Whether it's holy or unholy, whether it's good or bad, whether it's an evil emperor or a good president or whatever it is, we all express, our, all of our cultures express that reality because the, the greater reality is Jesus' is supreme and Jesus' is preeminent. And we all were created to want a supreme being who we think is most important or preeminent and to submit to him and be his subjects and not just do what he says, but be devoted to him with such significance in our lives that we would die for him. We were created to be like that. And when people don't find Christ, they find it in their president or their emperor or somebody or their favorite athlete. Somebody. They were all made to be devoted to something or someone somehow. It's just this emptiness in us. And, and I see people that I, I meet people and I've talked with people who, who don't have someone or something to be, to be devoted to. And you know what they run to every single time? Conspiracy theories. Because there has to be something, there has to be some sort of meaning to this crazy, weird, chaotic existence that we call life. And when you don't find it in a person, when you don't find it in your favorite athlete or your favorite politician or God, then you try to make sense of the world and, and you start to realize no one's good enough. And so you run to conspiracy theories because it helps you resolve the reality that something's going on here. I can't figure it out. And the reason they can't figure it out is because they have no devotion to the most important being that exists. So the entire world, for all of human history, has been acting out what we were created to act out. Devotion to a supreme and preeminent being. And those who find Christ to be that satisfaction know that he fulfills it to the fullest. And those who don't find him to be that struggle. They struggle to find purpose. They struggle to find meaning. They struggle to find the ways that the dots in life connect. They struggle to find the, the reason for suffering. They struggle to find the reason for joy. When I hear people say things, when I hear un unbelievers say things like the whole point of life is just to be happy, I'm like, then what, die? And then what? I agree. The whole point of your life is to be happy. In Christ. Like that's, that's the whole point of your life. Because if you're happy in Christ, first of all, that's the only way to find genuine, true, everlasting joy. And it's also the only way to then die and continue to be happy. So our entire existence, the, the entirety of human history has been acting out this reality that Paul is broadcasting to us now or proclaiming to us now that we all want an important person to be devoted to. And that is our application of this text. Your application of Jesus' preeminence is this, devotion. Now, I realize that I'm speaking to a room that's probably mostly believers and you already know, like, yeah, I know I'm supposed to be devoted to Jesus. But I also think that if I asked each of you individually, do you think your devotion to Jesus is 
perfect, you would say, oh, no. And you would be willing to admit your devotion to Jesus isn't perfect. I'm willing to admit my devotion to Jesus is not perfect. I think you are too. And if Jesus is preeminent, if he is the most important, then the simple question to ask yourself is, does my life reflect or yeah, does my life reflect my devotion to his importance? Does my life reflect my devotion to his importance? It's easy to consider Jesus as being first in your life. He's always the most important person in my life. He's first place in my life. My wife and I have told you guys this so many times from the pulpit that my wife and I say that to each other. She's always second place to me. And I'm always second place to her. Jesus comes first. We would have never got married if that weren't true. We agreed upon that before we ever even started dating. In fact, we stalled our dating process, or what we called at the time courting, right? We were, <laughs> because we were like, we don't date to date, we date to marry. And we, we didn't even, we decided to wait to start seeing each other, or whatever, dating, courting, um, just because we wanted to make sure that we weren't jumping into something because we were excited about each other. We're like, let's just make sure that before we get into this, that Christ isn't the center of it. And then we prayed together. And then we dated. <laughs> and then we got married. And now Jesus is at the center of our marriage. And he is our devotion. And trust me, there I could give you hundreds of examples of when one of us is not that devoted to Jesus and how it messes with the marriage relationship. And I'm sure most of you have experienced that too. But we have to make him first place in our life. He has to be first place in our marriage. He has to be first place in all of our relationships. He is the most important player in the gospel. And he is the most important person to be resurrected. And without him, we have no salvation. We have no resurrection. We have no eternity. So if we carry this line of thinking to its logical conclusion, then if he is the most important person to exist and the purpose of my life is to exalt his importance, then is Jesus truly most important to me in everything I do? Is he first in your devotion? You're devoted to your spouse, you're devoted to your kids, you're devoted to your church, you're devoted to your job, you're devoted to your favorite team, you're devoted to your favorite recreational activities, you're devoted to your favorite political party, you're devoted to a lot of things in life. You're devoted to good money management. You're devoted to certain organizations. But is Jesus first in all of those devotions? And now, what does that really look like is the question. Is he first when you watch a movie? Like, I love movies. Is Jesus first when you decide to watch a movie? Like, do you consider your devotion to Jesus when you consider what movie you're going to watch? My wife and I set ourselves up for certain, with certain, I guess you'd call them rules in our marriage and in our family that allow us to ensure that we are maintaining devotion to Jesus when we select movies. So there's certain movies we won't watch if they have certain things in those movies just to maintain devotion to Jesus so that those things don't flash before our eyes and disrupt our devotion to Christ and turn our attention to things that we shouldn't have our attention on. Oh, you're overthinking. It's just a movie. No, it's life. Is he first in your free time? Meaning, do you consider his importance when you decide what you're going to do with your free time? How am I going to spend my free time? Because I tell you what, one of the leading causes to, of sin, one of the leading causes of sin is boredom. Alone and bored, you're going to fail. You're going to sin if you're alone and bored. And then if you take your loneliness and your boredom and you add to it some sort of, I don't know, device, 
and you put that in your hand and that device gives you access to everything in the universe? The potential for sin is limitless. However, also with that device, the potential for holiness is also limitless. So it matters where we rest our devotion, which means your devotion is supposed to influence how you use your free time, how you decide what movies to watch, what music you listen to, how you talk to your spouse, how you behave at work, how hard you work at work, how hard you cheer for your favorite team, or how much you're invested in your favorite political party, or whatever your devotion is, wherever you're devoted to something, you have to consider and implement your devotion to Christ. And I think it's way too easy in the church, way too many people who say that they're Christians, and maybe they are, who join a political affiliation and their devotion to the traditional views and the moralistic views of that political party or the conservative views of that party rank way above Jesus. But they love to connect their political affiliation to Jesus and to the Bible and say ultimately that I believe in this political perspective because it's most like the Bible. And what we've done is we've abandoned Jesus for morals. It's called Christian nationalism. It's your devotion to your political view and your political view being traditional and conservative and morally good and saying, yeah, that's what Jesus is. Traditional, conservative, morally good. That is not the nature of Christ. And it looks so much like the Bible. It looks so much like Scripture. It looks because it's, it's good and it's, it's full of good behavior in our view and in a political, from a political view. And, and, and it's the same, that conservative perspective is the same perspective that says we don't abort babies and we don't do this and we don't do that and we believe in this and we believe in that. And that sounds most biblical to me. And what we do is we blur the line between our relationship to Jesus and our relationship to our affiliation to a political party. And the line gets so blurred that we don't separate them. And instead of being loving, gracious, kind, understanding, and proclaiming truth, we start touting around our political views with the name of Jesus being dragged along behind us saying, oh, we're doing it for him. You know what that sounds like? A Pharisee. Pharisees were the traditional conservative political party of the time. They were morally good. They were the traditionally sound group of people. And they were conservative they would love Republicans. I'm not assuming everyone here is a Republican or is conservative. There's probably liberal people in here. Doesn't matter to me. I don't care. My point is, whether you're extremely liberal or whether you're extremely conservative, I'm not telling you can't have a political affiliation. And I'm not saying you shouldn't stand up for the things that your political affiliation are, are connected to. Of course you can. And of course the gospel and Jesus should infiltrate your political perspective. And of course Christians should get politically involved. But what I'm telling you is on a personal one-to-one -one level in your relationship with Jesus, how is, he, how is your devotion to him influencing your political perspective and your political affiliation? Because your devotion to your political view can easily outrank your devotion to Christ. And I see it all over the internet. Not you specifically, but just conservatives in general all over the internet. People in the name of Jesus saying, God hates fags. I don't think anyone here has said that, done that, or held a sign at a protest that said that. Is that love? Is that, is that Christ-like? Is that the gospel? Is ripping on someone who has a different perspective than you, a different political perspective than you, and saying, you're dumb for believing that perspective? Is that what Jesus would say? I don't think so. I really don't. Does Jesus have a view on that particular subject? Of course he does. How do we get people to view that perspective biblically? Love, grace, kindness, gentleness, forgiveness, patience, peace. That's how. 
That's how we don't, we don't focus on the subject matter. We don't focus on the issues. We focus on Christ. And when we focus on Christ, he becomes the means by which our entire worldview is reshaped. And as he reshapes our worldview and he becomes the center of our devotion, we start to weave ourselves into people's lives in a very Christ-like manner that is no longer politically affiliated or affiliated to a certain team or affiliated to a certain perspective or certain feelings or certain ideas. Instead, we're affiliated to Christ because we're in God's word and we become like Christ. And as we are devoted to Jesus, he starts to breed perfection in us. And as he breeds perfection, we start to become more like him. And the more like him we become, Become, then the better we become at actually making a difference in this world. That's how you reach lost people. You don't reach lost people by telling them all the things that they believe are wrong and that they're stupid. You reach lost people by being devoted to Jesus because Jesus himself said, do good works. Now he's not being legalistic. He's not saying do good things but don't care about me. He's, what he's ultimately saying is do good works as a product of your devotion to me. And when people see your good works, they'll see your devotion to me, my preeminence and my importance, and what will be the result? They will glorify your Father in heaven. That is how we should be involved politically, by devoting ourselves to Christ. That is how we should be involved in our are being, being sports fans. That's how we should be involved in our marriages. Are you married to someone who's not a believer? I know a lot of people who are, there's one, one person in the marriage is a Christian, the other is not. And, and, I mean, Peter tells us, you know, he says to the wife, if your husband's not a believer, <laughs> devote yourself to Christ. That's the only way you're going to win him. You're not going to win him over by yelling at him, you, you need to go to church with me. That's not going to work. Love Jesus, love your husband, and maybe he'll get saved. It's the same reality in every other aspect of life. Love Jesus, devote yourself to Christ, and then your life, God will, Jesus will. Remember we learned last week about his supremacy, also involves his sovereignty. He will sovereignly orchestrate your devotion to him and weave your life into people's lives that creates opportunities to show them how beautiful Christ is and how great the gospel is, and you will make a difference in one life. You could go on Facebook and type out all your views on everything in the world and be like, send! And how many likes are you going to get? Like 15? 15 like-minded people who are like, like, oh yeah, you preach it, dude. Yeah, you're a great point. I totally agree. Did you just change the world? No. That's called an echo chamber, right? <laughs> you're preaching to the, to, the, to the choir. The same people who believe you are just going to tell you back that what you said is good. What, what does that achieve? Nothing. Have you ever shared the gospel with a lost person and they got saved right in front of your eyes? Have you ever experienced that? So awesome. So awesome. I'll tell you a quick story, and then we'll be done. I was a youth pastor in Illinois, and we had a group of probably like 30 kids in our youth group, and some of them were part of a boys' home. The boys' home was like, uh, you know, boys were like disrespectful to the parents, and you know, some of them were like doing drugs and things, and they would get sent to this boys' home, and they had to come to our youth group. And so they came to our youth group, and there was this one boy, Matt, and Matt was not a believer, and I was preaching to the kids at youth group one night, and I looked at Matt, and I don't know why, I mean, it was clearly the Holy Spirit, just told me to, like, say, like, preach the gospel to him, and, like, and I, and I asked Matt to come up in front of the kids, and I literally just, you know, I shared the gospel with him, and I said, dude, you know, talked about him being a sinner, like, and it wasn't in a way that made him, like, feel like he was standing out as this wicked guy in front of everyone else, but it was, it really worked out well, and, and I was able to share the gospel with him in front of the kids, and... I said, do you want that now? And I could feel it welling up in that moment. I was like, this is going to be awesome. He's going to say yes, and he's going to accept Christ, and everyone's going to be like, oh, this is so cool. And he goes, no. <laughs> I was like, yeah, you can go sit down now. <laughs> and then I went on and kept preaching. And then as I was preaching, I felt like the Holy Spirit was like, do it again. And I was like, no way. <laughs> no, I'm not doing it again. He already said, no, I'm not risking it. And he's like, do it again. And I was like, okay, okay. So I call Matt back up and I go, what about now? And he goes, 
I don't know. And I was like, we are getting somewhere. <laughs> I said, go ahead and sit down. Finish the night. Kids went off to go play games. I met, I was standing at the pulpit, like gathering up my papers. Matt walks up to me, stands next to me, starts crying, and he goes, now. And I was like, whoa. Like, man, who I just get chills thinking about. It, it was so awesome. And, and so, like, that, that kind of stuff happens when you are so Christ-centered, so devoted on Jesus, and, and, and you're in his word, and you're praying, and, you know, like, all these activities we do as Christians, like, you know, giving and going to church and reading your Bible and praying, and, and it sounds so religious. It's not religion. It is the product of a devotion to God, Amen. the God of the universe who created you for his glory and for your joy in him. And if you're not a believer right now, this is the call right here, right now, to accept Christ as your Savior. Just say yes. And you will have a life of joy. I didn't say not suffering. I said joy. Whether you're suffering or not. Whether it's hard or easy, it doesn't matter. And if you want other people in your life and other people in Osceola or St. Croix Falls or East Farmington or wherever you live, if you want those people to get saved, if you want to see the kingdom of God at hand, which Jesus preaches about, then they need to hear the gospel. And they're not going to hear it on Facebook or Instagram, or whatever else. They're going to hear it when they see you. Yes, I want to spread the gospel. Yes, we should create ministries that preach the gospel to lost people. But none of that means anything. Those are just programs. Programs don't save people. The gospel saves people. And the only way people see the gospel is when they see it in you. And the only way they're going to see the gospel in you is if your devotion is fully on Christ. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we uh, admit we are so imperfect. We are not as devoted to you as we want to be or as we could be. And here's the beauty of your gospel. In our imperfection, your grace is abundantly good. And then as we fail to be devoted to you, your grace not only covers us, but it picks us up and pushes us forward toward your perfection. So by your grace, stir up deep devotion to you. Cause us to forget our failures, not to look back on who we were or who we are or what we've done wrong, but to look forward to who you want to make us, who we are to become as a devoted follower of Jesus. Let us walk that path, clear that path for us, and cause us to walk in your ways so that we would be satisfied in you and the lost people would find you through our devotion to you. This is our prayer. Make it true. In Jesus' name, amen. <laughs>